Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. The legends are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Hey buddy, hey buddy, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA. You see how we're kind of changing our intro a little bit now because Al started doing Alarm Alarm and I just thought, well, you know, it's USA, he's not here. Um, in honor of you, John, we'd do Hey Buddy instead. But anyway, I'm here with John McManus, um, as always. Um, John, how are you? What news? What's going on? Doing great. I had a great Thanksgiving that I'm still trying to kind of come back from. Of course, of course. I mean, you know, because man, you just you just eat like a hog on Thanksgiving. I mean, it's just that simple. It's been exercise ever since. <laughs> is, is Thanksgiving bigger than than Christmas? I wish it was because I like it better, to be honest with you, Jim. Um, because Thanksgiving is is a truly American holiday, like the Fourth of July. Those are my two favorites, and they don't entail gifts or anything. They entail just fun stuff of getting together with family, having a good meal, having fun. There's there's football, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it is interesting because when you look at when you look at wartime diaries, you know, people do absolutely talk about Thanksgiving. They do talk about 4th of July, they do talk about Christmas, of course, everyone does, but but it's noticeable when I was doing doing the Italy book, you know, all the diaries I was looking at, they all absolutely expecting their turkey dinner on, on Thanksgiving's Day, and, and frankly, they got it as well in some form, albeit tinned or whatever. Yeah, because I think that, that dovetails with something we've talked about a lot, the logistics, um, that the U.S. Army and Armed Forces prioritize that of getting a Thanksgiving meal to everybody. And I mean, that's really amazing to pull that off on any level. Well, it goes back to morale, doesn't it? Oh, it does. And, and the expectation that this should be done for you. And uh, I mean, there. I think if we're talking like the Red Army, that would be a very foreign concept. Like, what? You know, we're going to, you know, expend most of our food resources now for this holiday or something. Why would we do that? Um, but the Americans at least have that capability. And so no matter where you were on Thanksgiving, say in 1944, you were probably going to get your turkey. Now, you were going to get a lot more desirable in a rear area, you know, with where it could be warm and you get your gravy and whatever, versus a frontline foxhole where it's pouring down rain and whatever else. But the gesture mattered. Um, and, and this continues in Korea and in Vietnam, mm -hmm. definitely in the 21st century, um, when in some of the uh, 
support operating bases in uh, in Iraq. You've got such good food that service people are gaining weight if they're, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> and then Thanksgiving dinner is just one of the reasons. So yeah, you're not going to be gaining weight shimming up Monte Samucro, are you? No, definitely not. Or sweltering in a jungle. And it's Thanksgiving for the nation of the United States. It is, yeah. Rather so, than being rid of us pesky limeys. No, yeah, exactly. It really has nothing to do with that. It's 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 sort of our origin story from a kind of maybe Anglo and Western centric point of view of the original settlers in the Northeast and New England um, coming together with Native Americans and having this kind of celebratory feast is, is sort of the concept. Now that's the ideal. Um, we all know that it's an adversarial relationship too, and one that doesn't work out too well for the Native Americans on many levels. So it's a it's actually a pre-U.S. tradition. Uh, it goes back to the colonial days of the 17th century, but really is solidified once we have this thing called the USA. It really becomes solidified. So what's interesting is that, like, even in the Civil War, uh, on the Union side, you've got a lot of people eating Thanksgiving meals, and it's a priority there for the U.S. Army at that time as well. So it's not just a kind of 20th century thing. It really goes back a long way. It's one of the reasons why I like it, the tradition of the holiday. But anyway, we thought today with John, we'd, we'd sort of slightly look ahead to 1944. And I think the interesting thing about the way the the narrative of, of, of World War II is, is that it's always told in ink spots, isn't it, that, that don't very often connect on the blotter. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, from a British point of view, it's Dunkirk, Battle of Britain, Alamein. We'll forget about Singapore um, and, <laughs> you know, but sort of D-Day and so on. Fall of Rome, I guess, just about. But actually, I mean, there's so much going on in 1944. There really is everywhere you look. But there's so much of it which people just don't know about because it's being consumed by sort of bigger, better-known events that have then been turned into Hollywood movies or whatever. There's so much going on that I think we could we could write a book that would be thousands and thousands of pages long just covering 1944, which certainly from a U.S. point of view is the, the pivot point year of the war and is the moment when the United States becomes what, what it is now in the, in the sense of this kind of international economic and military superpower. You see that manifest all over the globe. Yeah, and, and so it's hard to grasp it. Is there a moment? I mean, is it is it the 1st of August when, when it becomes the army group in Normandy, uh, you know, and you combine that with what's going on in the Pacific? Or, or is it earlier than that, do you think? I think it's earlier. I, I, I think it's early. I think it's June 1944. If we could point to one month, I mean, we could, that'd be the fun debate that we could have, I guess. Uh, there's a lot of different months we could make a case for. But the reason I think it's June, obviously, the Normandy invasion, which really, you know, when we look back at it now, the way I view it, is the beginning of NATO. Um, in many respects, and the beginning of the U.S. willingness to basically defend Europe, because we've we've nibbled around the margins, as you know way better than anybody else. Because I, I think Jim, you know more about the Italy campaign than anybody on the globe, uh, so you know we've been involved in that and whatever. But this is the big operation now, designed not just to conquer Germany, but to basically secure Western Europe for the kind of values that that we say we espouse that we all do, whether Belgian or British or, or Dutch or Canadian or whatever. So Normandy is the beginning of that in tandem, of course, with these major operations in Italy and the liberation of Rome and all that. And in the Pacific, major, major operations happening there in the Marianas, invasion of Saipan on June 15th, in addition to the fighting that's going on in New Guinea and, of course, uh, what's happening in Burma. Uh, and so the U.S. has is just spread all over the globe in operations that, say, three years earlier, any one of them probably would have absorbed all of our resources, all of our capability, and now we're doing it all at the same time. 
it's really kind of amazing. Yeah, it really is. And how many how many people are in uniform by kind of June 1944? Is it kind of 12 million or something like that? I don't know if it's, I think it's more like 10 or 11-ish. I, I could be wrong, you know, but I think it's certainly enormous. It's And the army, of course, has grown to its largest size ever uh, at 7 to 8 million, roughly. By some huge margin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not even close. And and of course, the, you know, the army in World War One had been pretty large. And of course, during the Civil War, but, uh, but yeah, World War Two takes it to a new level. And so you've got kind of this full mobilization. And this is before, you know, we're into the spring of 1945, when you've got this eagerness on the part of the American public to begin demobilizing for a peacetime economy and whatever else. So you're really starting to see us at this kind of full military capability. And I, I really think it's it's part of what enthralls me about studying it. You know, even all these years later, I, I just see it as so monumentally significant, um, even eight years on. I still just find it very hard to comprehend the scale of logistics involved. I mean, you, you know, there are, there are people in Washington and elsewhere, presumably, who are kind of working out shipping manifests. And you've got to coordinate that with the Merchant Marine with the Navy, very often in the case of, of getting stuff to Northwest Europe, with the Canadian Navy and the British Navy, rather than just the US Navy, you've also got to get those those manifests into ships which aren't always American. A lot of them are British, Swedish, Norwegian, Dutch, Danish, Greek, you know, with language barriers and, and a whole host of other stuff, and they're delivering stuff across the Atlantic as well. So someone has got to work that out. I mean, not someone or some organization. I mean, who who is it who's doing that? Because that's a that's not, that's not just a that's more than a Troy service, because it's also the merchant marine and the merchant navies, and which are ostensibly civilian. And you're dealing with foreign nationals. I mean, oh my God, it's just incredible. And then. That's got to, someone's got to go, okay, that bit's going to go to Britain. You know, post D-Day, that bit's going to go to Normandy straight away or Brittany later on or Rotterdam or whatever later, later on. Someone else has got to say that's going to go in through the Mediterranean. So it's going to have to go past Gibraltar and go up through Marseille, Marseille or something like that. I mean, what what is the process? I mean, how, how does that work? It's just incredible, isn't it? And that's before you've then kind of allocated a proportion of what's coming out of factories to the Pacific. So, so I mean, working backwards, orders coming from air forces, foreign governments like Britain, mm-hmm. the Navy, and the Army. Those orders are going in. Then they've got to be made. Then they've got to be traveled across the USA, generally by rail. So a railway lines have to be created to go to Willow Run, which is a brand new factory building B-24s or whatever, B-29s. Now, this is, uh, where is Willow Run, is it? You know, it's in the Detroit, Michigan area. It's outside of Detroit. Okay, so it's outside so the, of the Detroit. The Ford Motor Company, you know, located his headquarters there. So, okay, so it's, so it's you know, that's a mile and a half long or whatever it is. Yeah. So a railway line has to be built huge amount of resources internally within the USA. Then it's got to be put on a railway, and then it's got to be taken to a port. might be the Pacific port, but if it's going to the Pacific, or it might be an Atlantic port like New York or somewhere else. I mean, where else could it be going from? Could be going to the Soviet Union, depending upon what we're setting. It could be in a convoy going north there. It could be going through Iran. So would it go, would it go up through Canada on a train to Alaska and then across that way? Um, possibly because you have the, you have the Alcan highway. So if it's mobile on the road, you've got that by now, uh, you don't have the same kind of rail capacity through Alaska. So you're probably looking at the California, you know, ports and also Seattle 
in uh, Seattle, Washington and whatnot. So railways are being built to cope with this? Um, in the sense of Willow Run, you're right, but mostly we've got the rail network. Um, as of as of the year 1900, the U.S. had 193,000 miles of railway. Now, to give you a perspective on that, that was more than all of Europe combined, including Russia. Um, so that's 40 years before this. So you can imagine some of those rail lines would have been expanded, especially probably in urban areas. So sidings and different lines going down to kind of to meet to factories, so they could just go straight off the factory, straight onto it. So then you go to so they goes from the side rail to a kind of marshalling yard in the middle of Detroit, and from Detroit it then gets added to whatever goes through the night with its foghorns and all the rest of it. That they that those mournful cries that the railways always seem to do, and they still do in the USA. Still do. I know. Um, so then it goes to a port, whatever port. But someone's got to work out where that consignment is going mm-hmm. and to which port. Then it's got. Then someone's got to work out what ship it's going on and what the destination of that ship is and how that ship is going to get there. Is it going to be a single sailing or is it going to be part of a convoy? Yeah, is there a convoy system in the Pacific or is it just single sailings? Um, it is more of a convoy system with also single sailings, depending upon the situation. Single sailings tend to be troop ships. Right, because they're faster. Yeah, and with submarine escort sometimes, or, or other ships, uh, destroyer escort, something like that. Um, you know, so there's a lot of chances taken in the Pacific, uh, because it's very unlikely the Japanese are going to be operating in Hawaiian waters or something like that. But you got to worry about it. And uh, so all of this is an enormous kind of coordination in terms of even how you uh, load the ships. Uh, because really the Navy and the Army want the ships loaded differently. The Navy wants to to maximize every bit of space because they know all about that. That's how they live. That's their world. Uh, the Army wants the priority of what needs to be ready immediately when we go ashore in combat kind of thing. Uh, and so that may not be as efficient. And an example I'd give you is these um, sort of sleds that we have, almost like, um, I'm not finding the right word. It's, it's like a sled arrangement where put you put supplies onto a uh, like a sort of like a like a half crate kind of thing that that you then slide off and you can immediately then you've got your crate your ammo crates and whatever it's like a forerunner of the shipping container kind of yeah um but but it's hard really to make that efficient and and so the navy and the army kind of have to work out a compromise I like the 7th Infantry Division does this in the invasion of Attu in May 1943, for instance. Um, by, by 1944, they're getting pretty good at this, and, and they're starting to work together better, more efficiently. So, so is, that, is that all done in Washington? I mean, is, 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 is there an office in Washington? To try, so at what point are they deciding what goes in what ship and where to? And that, that wouldn't be a Washington thing. That'd be more like an operational military thing where, um, let's say I am the operations officer for the for the uh, 77th Infantry Division that's going to be going to Guam, say. Uh, I am going to work with my opposite, who's, say, in the ops section of um, maybe a task force, a naval task force, or a fleet level, say, Spruance's 5th Fleet or something. Um, you know, I'm going to work with that guy probably to figure out all of these nuts and bolts of what we have to prioritize, where it's going to go and what's possible. So if you are probably probably a captain level guy, and I'm a, probably a lieutenant colonel, if you're that guy, you're telling me what's possible, what kind of ships you've got, how much space there is. Um, I'm telling you what I need in terms of my TO and E um, and what we need to fight. So that's a lot of push-pull that's going on. Plus, you can imagine how we're going to have to work with the G4 section. On my side of the house, that's supply of the division. 
on your side of the house, it's sometimes called J4 or whatever, but it's the same thing. So these are staff officers. Yeah, these are staff officers who are doing incredible work, really. And they're, they're, they're quite overlooked, I think, in terms of their importance. Yeah, so you um, have G1, G2, G3, G4. At division and above level, they call that. Confusingly, below that level. G1 is? That's personnel. Personnel. G2, uh, G2 is, is intel. Yep. G3 G2 is? Ops and training. And then four is supply and five is civil affairs. But but confusingly, below the division level, it's known as S1, 2, 3, 4, yes, 5. Yes, 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 yes. So, you know, yeah. and, and the Marines uh, sometimes call it D1, 2, 3, 4, like at the division level or R1, 2, 3, 4 at the regimental level. So it's military. They have to figure out a way to confuse you. But, uh, um, but at a higher level, you know, the combined chiefs of staff... Uh, mainly British and U.S., have decided on these priorities. And that's, of course, as you know, I mean, where that's where a lot of the big, big arguments are at the head of state level and the head of service level for these these allies. And and so by the time it comes to you and me, you're my naval counterpart. I'm the Division G3 for the 77th. By the time it comes to us, our superiors in Washington and London have decided all this and have told you and me, get it done. And now our commanders are too, you know, A.D. Bruce, my boss who commands the 77th Division is telling me, okay, I need to make sure that um, my regiments, when they're ashore, they're ready to fight. So you make that happen now. <laughs> However you're going to do that, that's up to you. You can push, pull, steal, beg, borrow, negotiate, whatever. But but all of this is done, of course, in a pre-digital age. I mean, that's that's the extraordinary thing. You haven't got any, you know, some computer working at all. Right? It's all got to be be done and you know by hand and and carefully allocated you know if you're thinking about a transatlantic convoy i mean you know think about the the, the various you know you've got lots of tankers but you've also got with fuel but you've also got merchant ship filled with lots of different things some might have food in and grain and all the rest of it but also kind of natural resources and then others have got kind of tanks and guns and bits of aircraft and all the rest of it and they they've all that's got to be allocated to that ship when that when the ship finally gets to liverpool or gurak or you know wherever in scotland it's got to be unloaded. It's then going to be put on a train again. It's then going to be sent to wherever it needs to go to and eventually kind of delivered to the right person. It probably gets blown up on day one. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> it is just astonishing that they, the America has got to this place by end of 1940, well, middle of 1943, you know, by the time you got to Husky, Husky is such an enormous operation. By the time you're getting to the beginning of 1944, you've got operations in Italy, obviously, you've got operations throughout the Pacific, um, Southeast Asia, China, still sending supplies to the Soviet Union, you're building up forces for Operation Overlord in Britain. I mean, crikey. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, that's what I'm saying. I think there's such a a kind of a majesty to this overall thing. It's just, it's very hard to wrap your mind around it. And you can study it for years like you and I have, and it's still, you know, and here's something that's mind blowing. The, the thing that's amazing to me is that how differently things are working in the Pacific versus the, the European theater and the Atlantic. So for instance, in, in the European theater and Atlantic, we don't really have to worry about refueling as we go with our naval forces. Whereas the vast Pacific the Navy by 1944 had gotten really good at forward logistics, forward refueling. And refueling at sea. And refueling, exactly. Refueling at sea, resupplying at sea. All of that allows us to sustain our fleets in combat a long period of time in 1944 and 45, which is more than the Japanese can handle. All of this allows us to have a substantial portion of our submarine fleet, you know, on patrol at any given time, destroying Japanese shipping. 
So, so it's maintenance of the effort, isn't it? I'll tell you what, on that spot, let, let's just take a quick break because I want to go back to maintenance of the effort. So I'll take a quick break now, and, and when we go back, we were going to talk about the forgotten bits of 1944, but actually we're ending up going on a massive logistic rabbit hole, but it's fascinating. See you in a minute. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperice.com. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, James Holland, and with John McManus. And we are talking just the mind-boggling, extraordinary enormity of US logistics and supply chains in World War II. And it's stuff that most people, I think, John, just don't think about it. Just It just is. You know, that Sherman tank in Brittany, it's there because it just is. You know, the, those Amtraks getting onto Saipan, they're just there. And, and let's worry about those Marines attacking or the Second Armoured or whatever it is. And let's just think about those boys rather than worrying about the nuts and bolts of it. But actually, worrying about the nuts and bolts makes the whole thing even more extraordinary, even more, more incredible. And I think this that maintenance of the effort is so important, isn't it? It, it, it is that, I mean, we've t- we talked about it a lot, Al and I, and the three of us, John, about that ability to kind of sort of be able to change a Sherman engine in two hours in the field. But that ability to be able to never let up, let up the pace is, it's such a force multiplier. I mean, it is a literal force multiplier. But it, it gives you so much more bang for your buck, doesn't it? It means you, you can just keep pounding in a way that your enemy can't because they don't have the supply chains even remotely to, the, to compare with what the United States is putting off. Right. It's exactly what they can't handle is when you can constantly sustain your operations this way and put max pressure on them, then that's what's going to cause them to collapse. Um, if they're able to, to get that kind of um, operational pause you know, the Germans have proven very resilient in this war. Um, the aftermath of the, the Hamburg raid is an example when, you know, you know, they get firebombed. And, and if you've been able to do a dozen of those spear set or something like that, you know, he thought it would have been the end of the war. I think that's an exaggeration, but still maybe you would have had some kind of difference making situation. 
Uh, what you end up having, though, ultimately, especially I think with sea operations and and the bombing and and ground operations too, is the ability to constantly keep putting pressure on. Um, when 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 the Axis cannot hold up to that, and 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 really it goes along with uh, what I think is Eisenhower's correct view of the broad front approach to the conquest of Nazi Germany. Why would you not embrace your ultimate strength, <laughs> which is the ability to do everything we've just talked about? Um, why would you just gamble on one sort of narrow push, no matter who's leading it? And I mean, in, in an American football term, it's like, why am I going to go for the bomb when I when I'm gaining a lot of ground on the run and I can wear these guys down and get into the end zone? Ultimately, I, I don't know. It's just. You know, I know I've never mentioned Mark Clark before, but Mark Clark's broad front approach to breaking out of Anzio, for example, in May 1944, is along that same principle. It's like, why go all out for Valmontoni when I've got enough forces here now to amass that I can turn and actually deal with 14th Army, which wasn't even a part of the original battle plan? I mean, why wouldn't you do that? And, and if you've got the resources and your enemy doesn't, then going for a broad front approach seems to be entirely sensible. Oh, I think it is too. And I think that's why they were wise to do it. And, you know, they try with, I guess the point I've always made, and, and this is part of the debate, I'm sure pe- some people disagree with me, and I understand why. They tried it with Market Garden. They tried the single thrust thing. And what happened? You know, so that in a way, and the, the terrible price we pay for that is that we don't have Antwerp open, which, in you know, here's our logistics again, that affects our logistics and what we are capable of doing in the fall of 44. And I'll tell you, if we didn't have Marseille at that same time, you're talking about allied armies that might have had to retreat closer to their supply nodes, in my opinion. That's so that the South France in, invasion has been ripped on a lot by historians. But I think from a logistical point of view, it not only made great sense, it was imperative in order to keep those armies in the field. It's tragic for those armies battling in Italy that they've got to kind of, you know, having finally won, the, you know, rested the initiative in such a dramatic way with the fall of Rome, that then suddenly they're having to put the brakes on because obviously you always want to reinforce success. But but you can't do everything. And I would agree with you. I think, think Eisenhower was right. I think Dragoon was necessary because that's where the main effort is. You know, you don't want the main effort to be where you're moving north up through mountains and you've got an even bigger mountain chain beyond it to get over. That is the harsh geographical reality of the campaign in Italy, that even if you get through the Apennines and get into the Po Valley, which is north of Bologna and you know, and all the rest of it, it's that big flat bit, you've then got the mighty Alps. And that's a whole different ball game altogether. Whereas actually the terrain in southern France is comparatively straightforward by comparison to what they're confronting in Italy. So although you don't want to kind of have to kind of withdraw troops when you're when you're just got them on the run, this is the Allies' great dilemma. You can't be absolutely everywhere all the time at maximum strength. And, and you know, something's got to give and it's a difficult choice. But but I Honestly, I think it was the right one. But just to go back to that logistics, so so my, I've got I've got a tank um, in you know which is arriving into the port, uh, a Sherman tank into into Marseille. It's going to go up and, and and join Sandy Patch's forces. Um, who has decided that where that tank from the Detroit factory is going to go? Why does it end up in an Atlantic port? Why does it end up in a ship going across the Atlantic? Why does it end up in Marseille? Who is making that decision? Because ultimately, someone has to say, so, so it must break down. There must be a kind of pyramid. So at the top, you've got overall plans. Okay, so what do we want? We, we need to make sure that we've got X amount of supplies on the southern, you know, the Dragoon front. We need to have X number in the in the Pacific. We need to have X going in through kind of Normandy and, and, and Brittany or whatever. So we work, we've worked that out already. That Those are the big decisions. And then presumably, there's another 
a sub-department which is then going, okay, what sort of numbers do we need to do that? Then there's another one sort of going, okay, well, I know I need 24 Shermans on this date at this particular port, so where am I going to get them from? Is there any, at any point, is there bartering about this? Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. It's and it's so stressful. I mean, I mean, can you imagine? So, on what rank are you kind of putting a, a Sherman tank on a on a ship? Are you a major or a captain or what? You know, it's probably even higher than that on some levels. But um, so there's multiple layers to this. The War Production Board on the civilian side is sort of the major player in figuring out. Yeah, Donald Nelson, uh, who is starting to to lose influence by 1944, ironically, even as his his uh, agency has grown massively. And of course, the other thing I should point out is that remember this is the Roosevelt administration that had created the New Deal, so they were very good at creating agencies and turf bureaucratic turf wars and all that. So the war mobilization is very similar. So Nelson is sort of a babe in the woods compared to some of these other folks uh, who maneuver in Washington bureaucratic circles better than he does. But that has basically the War Production Board has given us the means to build those Shermans. So our 24 Shermans, think of everything that has to go right for them to get to where they need to be. We need the steel. We need, you know, all the, the parts. Think of all the subcontracting. Uh, yeah, well, I was just going to say the subcontracting is really interesting because it, to say you've got you've got the Detroit tank plant or whatever, that's kind of more an assembly unit than anything else, isn't it? It is, but it has to be coordinated. And so this is done at the WPB and the private sector. Right. So you've got a whole host, thousands of other factories producing little bolts and the little bar that goes over the lamp at the front of the tank. You know, someone's making that. That's not in the tank factory in Detroit. That's somewhere else. It's all got to come together. You know, someone's got to be making the flywheel on the tracks and the engine and and, uh, the ordinance. And uh, the ordinance had to be tested and like quality tested, quality control and all that in in a different factory. Someone else is making the cages that go in the turret. Probably so. All of that. So that is all assembled and then shipped, like you said, uh, via rail. So now probably part of a convoy. So it's almost like you're handing off responsibility now to somebody else who has a different part of the job. So whoever built those tanks is not going to be, you know, supervising the convoy that they go on. Now, how we've decided where they're going to go depends on the priority that the Combined Chiefs of Staffs has set up. So if we've got this mission now to fight in South France for Sandy Patch's 7th Army and the French 1st Army, we've now got to sustain and supply that, which means then Patch and his guys, uh, uh, Devers above him, 6th Army Group, have to fight for the resources that they need. And they're probably going to do that through uh, the Army structure of uh, Army Ground Forces, Leslie McNair, who is, I think, overlooked in his importance to this whole picture because he's dealing with all the combat forces we have all over the globe. Until he dies, of course, on the 25th of July. Yeah, and Cobra and the short bombings. And, uh, you know, so he's having to basically figure out how we're going to actually, you know, know, make all this really happen. And he's constantly getting lobbied. And, of course, he has to lobby Marshall, and Marshall has bigger picture stuff to worry about. So what ends up happening, by the time we're getting our 24 tanks, that's probably a compromise of whatever was possible to do. And so here it is. We've got it. And you know how this works. We send uh, those tanks into action. Maybe it's, uh, you know, two understrength companies we've got there that we have resupplied with tanks. And then in six or seven days of operations, those tanks, a third of them are destroyed or, you know, uh, maybe another seven or eight have been damaged and we can recover them. We can change the engines. We can do all that. The the rest are intact, but need maintenance. I mean, that's how this works. So from our viewpoint, let's say we're on the tank crew. We expect that the minimum for risking our lives and fighting this actual war is that 
the so-called knuckleheads behind us who are always ripping on, you know, because we're combat soldiers. We hate everybody else, right? I mean, that's how it works. We're like, oh my God, they need to get us grease. They need to get us oil. They need, you know, we need new treads. We need more shells. We need maintenance. What are they doing back there? You know, so it's hard for us to understand that there's all this global pressure because there's a guy, I guarantee you, there's a tank crew on Saipan that's looking at it the same way. That's wondering where the hell are our new guns or our new bastards <laughs> in southern France getting a hogging it all. And of course, Divas and Patch have got to compete. You know, they know that Bradley is getting more of the share than than they are because Ike has got a sort of weird thing about Six Army Group, and <laughs> he doesn't like Devers. It's the one person he doesn't get along with. Yeah, but, no, it's but bizarre. I, but isn't in it? fairness, to Ike, I mean, he's making bigger picture decisions, not necessarily based on personality as much as where he thinks is most promising, I suppose. And and the, the core of the armies is obviously on Bradley's side of the house, but still, you know, it doesn't help Devers that, that he doesn't get on with Ike. Um, I mean, I mean, all of this started for me when, when I was thinking about the, you know, I was thinking about Italy and about the fact that they were wanting to, the poor infantry divisions are kind of, you know, fifth army and eighth army are slogging their way up in back end of 1943 uh, in the rain and the mud and the misery and the mountains and all the rest of it. Whilst at the same time, they're preparing strategic air force bases for heavy bombers around Foggia and the kind of 13 or so airfields that are being developed. Well, those, those, those airfields, first of all, they've got to be repaired. You've got to get rid of all the Luftwaffe stuff that, that has been butchered for the Luftwaffe have bugged out. So that's got to be cleared out of the way. Then you've got to set up the infrastructure. An infrastructure for putting for, for manning six heavy bomb groups is quite a lot because each bomb group obviously got three squadrons and each squadron's got, you know, whatever, 25, 28, planes aircraft but it needs spare parts it needs ammunition it needs tents it needs ground crew it needs maintenance yards and, and you know spare parts for a very 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 complicated piece of equipment such as a b-17 or a b-24 then it needs fuel and it needs vast amounts of fuel so by the 25th of november american engineers have built a, a, a pipeline from the coast to Foggia airfield itself which is 25 miles in length and is capable of carrying 160,000 gallons of high octane fuel every single day and that is functioning by the 25th of november on the day of the 1st of november 1943 which is when they activate um the 50 us 15th air force strategic air force they also decide that actually they're not going to do six bomb groups they're going to actually up it to 21 by march 1944 beginning of march 1944 um which is much bigger commitment than six bomb groups which requires even more airfields. So more airfields have to be created, established with tents and maintenance teams and start all over again, you know, to the tune of 15 more than was originally planned. And then at the same time, you've got to maintain 5th Army and 8th Army with shipping, and there isn't enough shipping anyway. But this is a kind of microcosm of that bigger picture of kind of, you know, how much do you send to Saipan? How much do you send to through Marseille? How much do you send through kind of Omaha Beach in August 19, you know, late August 1944, et cetera, et cetera. These are all decisions. And and I suppose what I'm trying to get my head around is is what is the chain of command on this? There's some there's somewhere the buck stops right at the top, right? But but it's 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 not at the top that I'm so so interested in. It's more the kind of Someone has to make a call and goes, right, that Sherman tank is going on that ship. 
That's a big old call when there's that much competition because at every step of the way, it's just competition, 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 competition. And inevitably, the people that are in charge of getting supplies to Saipan are in competition with the people who are trying to get supplies to the Fodger airfields, who are also in competition with the people who are trying to maintain US Fifth Army at the Gustav line, who are also in competition with subsequently of what's going on elsewhere in in supplying England for the upcoming Operation Overlord, the cross-channel invasion. Not only is it a logistical nightmare, if everyone was singing from the same hymn sheet, it would be tough. But you're competing with one another. Yes. And I guarantee you, at every one of those spots you mentioned, uh, the general view is we're not getting enough. They're not supporting us right. They, of they course, don't understand. Of course, of course. And, and they're, they're screaming for more. And, and not just stuff, but people, you know, especially infantrymen. You know, we need more XYZ. I mean, it, that's, yeah, it's, it's a global war where everyone's in competition with everyone else. Now, Churchill and FDR are trying to kind of tame the cats in a way and, and you know, to organize this whole mess, but it's really the combined chiefs of staff that have to then decide precisely how this is going to, to be done. But the chiefs of staff, the combined chiefs of staff, that's the big picture stuff. It's like, okay, the number one priority is going to be for Europe is going to be overlord. Uh, within the Italian campaign, the Italian campaign's got to come kind of after the Pacific, after supplying the, you know, Chang's nationalists, after kind of supplying the USSR, then at the bottom of the chain is Italy. But but within Italy, the build-up of the air forces, strategic air forces at Foggia, is has got to come above the needs of US Fifth Army. That's right. And so it, it, something comes at the expense of something else. And, uh, you know, that, that's exactly it. And who suffers the most? The guy slogging up Monte Samucro or crossing the Rapido or whatever. Absolutely, always. And that never changes no matter where he is, whether he's on Guam or New Guinea or Italy or wherever. That's that's the reality. But I think the two, you start to see this play out. Not, I mean, certainly the big picture combined chiefs of staff, but then down through on the American side, the joint chiefs of staff and their key subordinates. So I mentioned McNair. Uh, head of army ground forces so he's have you know he's being handed <laughs> this this big assignment okay we need your army ground forces all over the planet um fighting all these battles especially 1944 when this really amps up uh make it happen uh train them up equip them yes because he's, he's also not it's not just a quite about you know from mcnair's role is also to kind of okay but, but what does what does the modern american army look like in terms of structure you know tank destroyer regiments and battalions you know that's a mcnair thing i, I remember right it's often thought of yeah i mean mcnair certainly sees a role but he's he's sort of involved in it right it's on his watch okay at the very least and and so he's he's also doing that as well i mean it, it, you're talking about unsung heroes i mean crikey the the, the responsibility on his shoulders and the time he's got to perform i mean the stress from being in the front line because you're you're in you're in mortal danger but the stress from making these decisions must i mean what's the kind of sort of just shelf life of someone doing this kind of stuff because there must be a point where you just go absolutely demented after a while because you, you must feel you're constantly oppressed you're constantly battering a, um, a, against a brick wall you're, you're constantly finding people who are saying no to stuff that's it. There's everybody everywhere you turn. It's no. God, I would, I, I would be the world's worst operations person. I would go. I'm so impatient. I'd just go demented, absolutely demented, totally do lally. And, and this is an exercise in diplomacy too. And, and yes, that's the course. other thing that's but important to remember: with your-, your own kind, but also the other allies you're working with. I mean, that's and I think that's what's interesting going forward, especially maybe from a U.S. point of view, is. You know, outside of World War One, this wasn't important to us, really, hardly at all. We, 
you know, we didn't fight with allies all that much. And, and now, since then, that's all we do, fortunately, which is the smart thing, in my opinion. It's about relationships. And and how do you do that? How do you, and all these different political agendas of the different countries. And man, that's, that's a tough go. But doesn't that kind of up your admiration for the combined chiefs of staff as well? Because the bottom line, the bottom line is, is for the most part, they get on. I mean, of, I know everyone loves to exaggerate the kind of the discord, but let's just think about the stakes here. Let's think about what they've got to do. The allocation of supplies, allocation of priority in terms of, 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 you know, where the main effort's going to be, where the subsidiary effort's going to be, all the rest of it. Isn't it amazing that at the end of the war, they're still talking to each other? I'm always keen to exaggerate the accord rather than the discord when it comes to that. I think what is remarkable about the, about, about the way the coalition partners, particularly the British and the Americans, operate in the Second World War is, is, is not that they fell out from time to time or had differences of opinion or, or kind of different priorities for strategy. It's what they did together, I mean, it's a, it's a masterpiece of cooperation, coordination, and coalition, isn't it? And I would say it's unrivaled in history. There has never been a, a better example of multiple nations and two very powerful nations cooperating together towards a common goal, which is with, with, with lots of nuance in between and where, where there are lots of differences as well. And yet at the end of it, they kind of pull it off. And, you know, I, I actually, I almost go as far as to say anyone who exaggerates the discord, I go shame on them because, you know, what the hell are you playing at? Have a little respect. They're focusing too much on the negative, and and I, there's a lot of that. And and no, and and really, actually, we let's think of it beyond World War II. This isn't a one-off. This is 80 years of much the same thing. When I mean, if we're just talking about the the American and British relationship, these are two countries that have different strategic agendas at various times in history, including in World War II, of course. But the relationship is the relationship, and then it's not just them; it's all these other countries. Think about what it means for Canada, what it means for France. Belgium, Holland, eventually Italy. I mean, you know, and in the in the Pacific for Australia, uh, for the Australian-U.S. relationship, all of these kinds. Of, that that's really, in a way, what really keeps me coming back and fascinated by this because I see that as so relevant to today. Of course, I completely agree with you. And don't you think that's our greatest asset on a lot of levels that you have the, this this coalition that is held together? That's a potent thing for any adversary. It absolutely is. I mean, but but John, if someone wants to kind of find out more about the kind of nuts and bolts of, of the kind of supply chains, I mean, wh- where do they go? Do they go to the Green Books? Is a U.S. Army in the Second World in World War II? Because there is there is there's logistics and supply. There's those two volumes on that grand strategy. I think it's called Global Strategy and Global Supply or something like that. There's that one, and then then there's a there's a supply of army troops and procurement of army troops and stuff. The raising and procurement of ground combat troops, or no, the organization and procurement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Robert yeah. Greenfield. That's a really good book. So these are the official histories. This is this is uh, you know United States Army in World War Two, and they're, they're they're subdivided into things. And in fact, actually, you can get them all on PDFs now if you if you just oh yeah, they're easy to find. But 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 yeah. there's and then there's people like Murray Klein who did um uh, who did that great magnum opus on on U.S. war production. And then if you want something a little bit lighter, there's the uh, Freedom's Forge by Arthur Herman, isn't it? I think it think it is. Um, but that's where you'd go. But do you know what I I'm just increasingly i don't know you know now i'm sort of turning my mind at the moment to, to cas- the, the casino book which is covering the first um from beginning of january to the fall of rome on the 4th of june 1944 and i want to do a little chapter explaining how it works 
how logistics works. Why is it that the people in Italy are, so, you know, the the Allied frontline troops are slugging, you know, slugging their way so much? Why are they feeling so kind of bereft? And why why is is the limited amount of shipping available for Anzio such a big deal? And I think to kind of put that into some kind of context, because everyone just goes, "Well, there was shortage of slip shipping." It's like, yeah, but why? And 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 what's going on here? And 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 what does it mean? And and why are why are infantry battalions harder pushed in Italy than they are going to be in Normandy or or elsewhere on the globe? And I I think it's worth pointing all that out and, and just the scale of the task involved and, and where where American supplies are going to globally and, and the pulls on them and the ties on them. And, and and unless you understand that, none of it makes sense in in, in a way that it should do. Yeah, and that, that really is the key to everything. And and I, I, I hope you do that. And also, it pushes back against this kind of larger, breezy narrative of the inevitability of Allied victory. Um, oh, well, you've got this coalition together. They were going to win for sure. And it was all over for Germany by 1942. Well, that's news to me, fighting these guys. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that, that took a heck of a lot to make all that happen. And it wasn't. So I think I see that as a very kind of reductive, deterministic kind of argument, in addition to being enormously disrespectful to all these British, Canadian, American, French, you know, you name it, Australian soldiers who fought their guts out, Chinese you know, whatever we're in Soviet, whatever we happen to be talking about, fought their guts out to make this happen. And then all these other folks doing the supplying. I mean, we didn't even talk about army service forces. Brand no, no, no. Well, I was just about to say, this is not the last you've heard of this. Anyone who's listening to this podcast, it, 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 this is this is going to come back to you. But I just think it's so useful to get out of that mindset where it's all about people jumping out of landing craft um, and kind of looking at the bluffs of Omaha Beach. It's 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 so much more than that. And, and I think you know, if you if you want to get your head around what's going on in World War Two and how it works and and, and why it kind of takes the form and the shape it does, you have to understand or, or start to think. You don't have to understand it necessarily all at once, but you, you, you have to start thinking in terms of those supply chains and, and how it works and how it's got to get across oceans and it's got to get from factories in the Midwest. You know, just, just to get to the ocean, it's quite a big journey. And once you start thinking in those terms... What the Allies achieve in the Second World War becomes even more impressive. But it's also your 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 sympathy for what's for those guys at the front lines, who are having who, who are the ultimate end product for receiving these goods. Again, becomes even more impressive. So uh, you know, I think it's you, you know, one always wants to have this in the back of your mind, and the more you can understand it and and, and start to kind of think about how it works, the the, the better, frankly. Anyway, so we were going to talk about forgotten things of 1944, and we haven't done at all. We've gone down a massive, gargantuan rabbit hole, but a really, really fascinating one. I kind of love that chat, actually, John. I thought that yeah, was ace. Absolutely. really really good anyway thank you john uh, thank you to everyone who's listened and, and continues to listen to this podcast um for those american listeners i hope you had a great thanksgiving uh for everyone else well you know maybe we should have our own public holiday in november because we all need cheering up at this time of year until next time see you later see ya